with you tonight. Open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, God willing, we'll finish 1 Thessalonians this evening. We'll see. Actually, Jackie willing. God may have other plans. But we'll see how it goes. Beginning at chapter, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Now, as we look, remember, as we're looking at the book of, of 1 Thessalonians, the, the outline the outline and the principles behind the book are given to us in chapter 1. He's, he's speaking to the Thessalonians about their faith. No, that's all right. Why, you don't want to look at my sweat? <laughs> Sorry, it's hot up there. Um, he talks about his faith, their faith, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their hope in, in, in as the scripture lays these things out in chapter 1, that's how the book's going to break out. We've already heard about their work of faith. Last week we talked about their labor of love. Today we get to talk about their hope. Their hope. And so as we take a look tonight, we're going to break down that concept. Their hope. The hope uh, that we have in Christ. It says now in verse 13, Now brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Paul in his 13 epistles is going to use this phrase three times. Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the first time spiritual gifts. The second time he uses that phrase uh, he's going to use it in terms of Satan's devices, his, the enemy's plans against us. The third time he uses it is here in regard to eschatology, study of end times, this concept uh, that we're going to touch on tonight of, of the rapture. I don't want you to be ignorant. These three things are the three things that the church struggles with most, even still today. Spiritual gifts. You'll have your group of churches that will say there are no such thing as the spiritual gifts. They were for the apostolic period only, and they've passed away. Uh, there are others who say, no, spiritual gifts are very much for today. So we have this, I don't know if you'd really call it a division, but you have this, for lack of a better term, division between some bodies, some churches, as a result. And it's one of the things Paul teaches on. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning these things. He's going to devote at least three chapters in the book of Corinthians that totally lays out for you and I, spiritual gifts are very much for today. The Holy Spirit is still moving today within the body, within the church, still accomplishing those things that he was doing at that time. Paul lays it out very clearly for us, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. He says he doesn't want us to be ignorant about Satan's devices, how Satan's going to come against us. And so today we still have these issues about, well, how does Satan really work? And, and you have two errors, one that doesn't even believe that Satan's around at all, the other who thinks he's behind every tree and behind every problem in their life. Both are an error, and Paul deals with each of those. Tonight he's going to deal specifically with this issue. I don't want you... To be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, this Greek word for sleep was a common uh, idiom in that time for people who had died. There's no question about who he's talking about. Those who have died, those who have gone before us. So he says, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant. 
The Thessalonians were sorrowful for those who had died and hadn't seen the return of Jesus. They were looking for his return. They were looking for him to come in 22 places in the scripture. The Bible lays out the concept of the imminent return of Christ. In fact, we'll see a couple of them here as we take a look. Paul was looking for Jesus in his lifetime. The point isn't whether or not he came during that time. The point is not necessarily what's going to happen in terms of our perfect eschatology, but how shall we then live? What, how shall we live? What should be our focus? What should be our, our design? So he's going to build on that concept. Listen, I don't want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. When people had died... God wasn't done with them. They were afraid. They died. They, they weren't alive. They're going to miss the resurrection. They're going to miss the rapture. They're not going to be a part of these things. So Paul's going to take a, a few verses here in chapter 4 to try to straighten out that idea that they have. He says in verse 14, 4, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Hey, the the Bible is very clear, folks. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So Paul wants them to understand, hey, just because they died, they're they're not missing out on anything. They're not going to miss out on any of that stuff. Immediately, they're in the presence of Jesus Christ. They're in that presence. Now, in terms, if we were to draw a timeline, they haven't experienced the resurrection, but their spirit is right there with the Lord. Right there with him in his presence. They'll never not be in his presence again through the rest of the time. And so, as we take a look, it says, Now God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So, there will be a cloud of witnesses that return with Jesus Christ. The Bible lays out for us, and we see as he returns, his bride is with him. Revelation chapter 19. So, as he returns, as he comes back... Those who sleep, Paul's laid it out. Hey, they're going to be with him. When he returns, they're going to be with him. They haven't missed out in anything. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Listen, they had an idea that if they lived all the way to the time Jesus returned, there was a a greater blessing for them and those who had died We're missing out. And so Paul says, listen, we won't precede them. We're not in a better place just because we haven't died. We who are alive and remain. And you notice that Paul uses the phrase we, right? He doesn't say those who are alive and remain. He says we. Because we'll see throughout Scripture that Paul is going to have this ideal that I'm living tomorrow, today, the next day, like Christ is coming back. Like I am going to see Jesus' face. So we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He puts himself in that category. And every time Paul talks about the second coming, he's going to use this phrase. The concept behind it is simply the imminence The imminent return of Christ. How shall we then live? Live like he's coming back tomorrow. Live your life as though you're going to see his face. 
Have your eyes open to what God wants to accomplish and how God ultimately wants to work in your life. He goes on now in verse 16. He says, Now for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That word rise in the Greek is the word aristame. Aristame. It means not just to rise. It means to physically stand among others. It is talking about a very physical resurrection. That there is a real and true resurrection. Not talking about a spiritual. It's not allegorical. He's saying, hey, they will stand. They will rise again. But you know, anytime we talk about these things, people get worried about a lot of stuff. For example, they'll talk about, well, you know, what if someone is, is cremated or or what about those who were buried long ago and their bodies have returned to the dust? It's, it's important that we realize the Bible is talking about a resurrection, not reconstruction. God is able to raise up for each of us that body that he has prepared for us. And he will raise up that body. He doesn't need our parts in order to do it. He is able, that same God, Genesis 1-1, who created the heavens and the earth from nothing can make your body the same way he doesn't have to have your femur and patella what happened if uh, my bones turned to dust the grass grew out of that dust the dust went into grass a cow ate the grass somebody else ate the cow now my femur's in them that's not how it works and when the bible talks about resurrection it's not it's not talking about reconstruction he's talking about a resurrection and paul's going to build on that so let's just turn for a moment and take a look at it in first corinthians chapter 15 he's going to build on this idea of uh, of the resurrection and of the body so while we're here let's take a quick look at it <clears throat> beginning on uh, verse 35 he says now someone will say how are the dead raised and with what body do they come foolish one what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. What's he saying? He's saying what goes in the ground is nothing like what comes out. It doesn't look the same. I can plant an apple tree. The tree don't look like the seed I put in the ground. The tree looks totally different. So he's saying, listen, this is what the resurrection is like. Every, everything, when it dies, it's, gonna, it's going to come back different, better, bigger. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed, its own body. The flower is related to the seed, the Scripture lays out, but it doesn't look like the seed. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of man, another of animals, another of fish, another of birds. He goes on to talk about the planets. Let's go down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. That means, in case you haven't already lived through it, our bodies are falling apart. There's probably folks here that have fake hips, knee replacements, you know, I got a big old rubber band holding a biceps tendon to, to where it's supposed to be held instead of the tendon. Our bodies are 
corruptible. They're falling apart. The Bible says all creation groans earnestly looking for the return of Jesus Christ when he's going to make all things right. So this corruptible body will be gone. It will put on incorruption. It goes on to say it's sown uh, in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So the resurrection that we'll see at that point, the resurrection unequivocally, absolutely, that will take place, nobody ever argues about that. That resurrection is going to be a resurrection where we will receive a spirit body, a body like Christ will be likened to as he was. When, when he wanted to see the disciples, he was able just to appear in the room. He ate with them. They could touch him. They could feel him. He wasn't just a spirit that had no, no matter or mass, yet he was able to do many other things. So it will be a resurrection, a glorious resurrection, when we get rid of the old wore-out motor and we put on a new And so Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians is, hey, it is not like second best for those who have died and are with the Lord. It's not like they're in the consolation round. They just finished their race. And that's okay. They were looking at it like, well, if you died, you were missing out. You see? So Paul's laying this concept out for them. He also says in verse 16, again, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. That word shout is a military term. It's a military term used to uh, gather up your troops. It was like what, the, what they would do for formation. The military would, would give a shout. He would sound this trump, the trump of God. And it would be this call to formation, this call to gather together. For he himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, those who went before us in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The concept of the rapture is built around 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the verses that we're looking at right now. There are a lot of people who will say when they look at the rapture, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. That's true. Neither is the word millennium, or for that matter, neither is the word Bible. But it doesn't stop us from reading the Bible or believing in the millennium. The concept of the rapture is this. That phrase that we read of, those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. That word caught up is the word harpazo. Harpazo means to be snatched away or pulled up. In fact, <clears throat> Kenneth Weist, uh, actually probably one of my favorite Greek scholars, I like to read him. It's hard to find his books because uh, everybody likes them, nobody gets rid of them. And I don't think that they're making them anymore. But he, this is what he writes about the word harpazo. It means <clears throat> to, that you own something, and you're claiming it for yourself. It also has a concept of being rescued from danger. In fact, it's used in Acts 23, 
Paul is trying to preach to the brethren, to, to the Jews. Remember, there's this riot, and they're trying to tear him apart limb from limb. And the Bible says that the Roman soldiers grabbed him and a harpazoed, caught him away, took him away from that place so that they wouldn't be able to tear him up. The word harpazo is translated in the Latin, the first way that the Bible was translated by the Catholic Church by Jerome and some of those early church fathers, was translated into Latin. The Latin word for harpazo is rapturo, where we get the word rapture. So that's how rapture came to be. But the concept, I don't care you call it the rapture, you can call it the snatching away, the great caught up, it doesn't make any difference to me. The Bible teaches it. The Bible lays it out right here. He says, listen, those of us Then we who are alive, we, right? Paul says we. Not those people who are going to be alive. Not like it's something way far out in the future. Paul is living his life like, hey, it's us. And people have been doing it ever since the time of Paul. Hey, it could be us. It could be us. It could be us that, that the Lord is coming from. We who are alive and remain will be caught up. In the clouds with them to meet the Lord in the air. This is separate and distinct from the second coming, which we read about in Revelation chapter 19. This time we see that we'll meet the air where? Or we'll meet the Lord where? I give you the answer. We meet the Lord in the air. We're going to meet him in the air. That's what it says. And so we take the literal interpretation. There's something that takes place where God calls up his people. We meet him in the air. And then later on in Revelation chapter 19, the Lord returns with his bride in tow. So we'll be with him when he returns and he puts his feet on the ground. He will definitely put his feet on the ground. He's going to, to, to touch the ground. And so as we, as we look at this, What we're seeing, what we recognize in the concept of the imminent return of Christ is simply this. The Bible lays out, I believe, when you look at the Bible through Hebrew eyes, it lays out for you pattern and picture. We see pattern and picture. In fact, if you look at the Bible, there are seven instances of a rapture in the Bible. Seven times that we can see it taking place. First time is Enoch. Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. Before the flood came in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. God took him home. See a a picture of the rapture there. Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. Elijah was what? Called up to heaven in a fiery chariot. The Lord took him. Again, picture, concept of the rapture. The Lord taking those It goes on, and we see Jesus in Mark 16. At the ascension, Jesus is taken up. It's the same concept. The same concept. We see Jesus going up. Then in the book of Acts, we see Philip, right? Philip is snatched up by the Lord. Although he's not snatched up to heaven, he's snatched up and placed in another place to minister. But nonetheless, the picture's there. The pattern exists in the scriptures, we see the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The church, the part of the church that is alive at his return, being caught up together to be with him in the air. And finally, you see John raptured in Revelation chapter 4. When the Lord says to John, come up here. 
And John is going to give the rest of the vision of the book of Revelation as an eyewitness account while he's there looking around the throne room of heaven to, to, uh, describing for us the events that he sees in that place. So we see the concept. We see the concept of what's going on. We see that God lays out for us that he has a plan for his people. Listen, over and over and over again, God's people are called to watch. Why are we called to watch? We're to be watching for the return of the Lord. He doesn't say watch for the Antichrist. He doesn't say watch out for some other event or look for some other thing. He says, hey, watch, watch. The scripture lays out for us in Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and the hour, no man knows, nor not the angels of heaven, but my father only. So the greatest discredit to the concept of the rapture has been the church. Because some goofball is going to put on his thinking cap, try to figure out some formula to tell us the date and the time when Jesus Christ is going to return. Man, they've been doing it forever. And they'll keep doing it. I don't know why they don't read the scripture and say no man knows. So why would you try to set a time? Don't try to set a time. Live every day. That's the point. The point is live every day looking unto the Lord. Paul would write in Romans 13, knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Hey, Paul's saying, listen, know the time. Man, we are in the term the scripture uses, the last days. Who cares how long the last days last? It doesn't matter. The point is, even Paul was saying, it's time to wake up. It's time to get moving. It's time to get serious about your faith. Live these days as though the return of Christ could happen at any moment. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.7, So that you don't come behind in any gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, Paul was teaching the people in Corinth, we want you to be waiting for the return of Jesus Christ so that you fall short in no gift waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Because Paul understood what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The concept of the rapture, while sometimes I look at it and think, oh Lord, this is a pretty rotten day. Today would be a great day for the rapture. But the point of the rapture is not so much the idea uh, for me personally of being rescued as much as it is the idea of seeing Jesus face to face. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. That's my focus. Hey, hard times go and I may wish and hope and, you know, I have a big bill due and I go, oh, Lord, rapture be nice. Rapture come before that bill's due. But hey, I'm not going to live my, the Bible says what? Occupy how? Till I come. That's what Jesus said. Occupy till I come. Those are his words. Well, the scripture goes on. It says in Philippians chapter 3, 
For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking. Imminent return of Christ. They're looking. They're watching. They're waiting. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Paul wrote that in Philippians chapter 4. He's looking for the return of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 6.14 it says that, that you would keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's teaching, guys, hey, keep, walk, look, watch, pray, looking for Jesus, looking for Jesus, looking for Jesus. So Paul wants them to live in the expectant return of Christ, with the expectant return, looking into that blessed hope, And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The blessed hope, Paul calls it in Titus, looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.8 So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What did the writer of Hebrews say? Unto those who are looking for him, who are watching for him. Hey, in the Gospel of Luke, guys, Jesus' own words, he said, Pray always that you may be counted worthy to miss these things which will come upon the whole earth. Jesus said, Pray that you will be found worthy. Pray, watch. Wait, look for the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we're going to see that concept over and over again. Listen, the part that I love to hold on to, too, in verse 17, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall, what? Always be with the Lord. Won't that be a great day? I mean, honestly, we live our lives out in this earth going varying from one point to another where we're either wondering gosh you know we can have doubts does god is god really out there am am, am i just crazy what's going on i've never been able to see him oh we see the effects of god like the wind we see god moving in our life and shaping our life won't it be wonderful when you don't have to wonder you just go like this oh there's the lord he's right forever forever We will always be with him. Man, that is so incredible. So what is it that Paul says to him at the close? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let these words be a comfort. Look, he's not saying, hey, you're all going to die and just suck it up and uh, Jesus ain't coming for you. He's coming, you know, 2,000 years in the future. So, uh, hey, buck up. That's not what he says, right? He says, look for the Lord. Look to the Lord. I always found it interesting, the, the research that they did with rats. They tested to see how long a rat could swim. They put it in a bucket of water. It's not very good if you're the rat. But they timed them to see how long. And I, I want to say it was something like 10 minutes. They'd swim for 10 minutes and then they'd drown. And then they put the rats, another group of rats, in a bucket. And at nine minutes they take the rat up out of the water. And they hold them for a minute, and then they put them back in the water again. 
And those rats, they swum for over two hours. What was the difference? They had hope. They were looking for that blessed hope of them two hands that were going to come down and pull them out. And just the hope that it would happen enabled them to swim longer than the rats that had no hope. They swum for 10 minutes and that was it. Now, the sad thing for the rats is both ways they end up dead. So I kind of feel bad for the little fellers. Although I have a few mice in my house that I would gladly donate to any kind of experimentation like that. (laughs) Nonetheless, it's our blessed hope. We want to comfort one another with the word. Say, looking unto Jesus. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. When, when Paul says this, it blows my mind. You remember how long I told you he was with them? A month. He's with them a month. The church is one year old. But already, Paul, in that one month that he was there, he taught them eschatology. He taught them the study of end times, the, the, the times and the seasons. He says, look, I don't need to tell you about this. We already talked about it. He had already spoke. He had already laid it out for the people. And just so you know, the word times is the word chronos. It means the sequence of events. And the word seasons means a precise point of time. So the sequence of events and the precise points of time, brethren, you have no need that I should write for you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now as he's talking about the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord is spoken of in scriptures 1,835 times. In case you're wondering, that's a lot. Seven out of every ten chapters in the Bible deals with it. That's that most spoken of period of time in the entire word of God. The day of the Lord, that day of judgment when God is going to judge the world the Christ-rejecting world. He's going to pour out His judgment upon them. He's going to pour out that judgment. So this is what He's turning to. Now listen, you know the day of the Lord is going to come as a, as a thief in the night. When they say, now listen, I want you to consider the pronouns that He's using. Okay? When they say, peace and, dest- and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. Paul makes very clear distinction between the brethren and between those who are going through the day of the Lord. He makes a distinction. They and you. They are going to experience these things, but not you. You are not of the night. What is he laying out for us? Listen, let's get a concept real quick of of, uh, the day of the Lord. If you turn with me to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 13, this time period, beginning at about verse 6, Isaiah chapter 13, again, this is one of the 1,835 places that is talked about in the Scripture. He says in verse 6, Wail! For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. 
Pangs and sorrow will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will, will not cause its light to shine. Then look at what the Lord says. He's going to say several I will statements. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. When the scripture is talking about the day of the Lord, that's what it's talking about. That outpouring of the wrath of God. Isaiah 13, it's very clear. This is God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. It is God pouring out his judgment on those who would not have his son rule over them. And so he's, as he's pouring out this, this wrath, this day of the Lord, listen, Paul's laying out in, back in 1 Thessalonians, hey guys, you were worried about those who had fallen asleep, that they're going to miss things. But listen, you don't need me to write to you about this because I've already told you about it. That day comes as a, as a thief in its night and it's coming for them. But you... You, brethren, are not in darkness that this day would overtake you. You are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Hey, listen, the Greek phrase son of means you are characterized by. You are characterized by light. In the Old Testament, when we study the book of Exodus, we look at the menorah. The menorah had a single vine in the middle. Attached to that single vine were six branches, the number of man. Seven, man being complete in Christ Jesus. The menorah was the only object within the tabernacle that gave light. It was light. We are called to be light bearers. Jesus said, if any of you walks in darkness, come unto me. I am the light of the world. And so when he says, you are sons of the light, he's saying very clearly, hey, you're sons of the Lord. You belong to him. You're in his hand. You're in in his possession. Hey, you're not of the darkness. You're of the light. You belong to Jesus. So we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us... Not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Listen, in this section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, first thing he wants us to grasp is, hey, the day of the Lord is coming. Even for Noah. Didn't Noah stand up there and preach for 120 years? The flood's coming, and people laughed at him for 120 years. So the church has been saying that that final period of God's judgment is coming, The day of the Lord is coming. That will be poured out on 
earth and people have been say, talking about it for 2,000 years. And you know what Peter said? In the last days, scoffers will come and they will say, where is the Lord? For things continue as they always have. Where's the promise of his coming? And Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as others count slackness. But he is what? Long-suffering because he desires that no one would perish. So, God extends his grace for however long God extends his grace. That's why he's God and I'm not. He's going to extend... He's going to extend his grace to all, to whosoever may receive. For the Bible declares in the Old Testament, God has no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. So that's the goal. So first, the day of the Lord is coming. And then, what's he going to tell us? Hey, those who deny it are sleeping. They're sleeping. Those who deny the, the return, those who deny the coming of the day of the Lord, I'm not talking about the rapture, those who deny the coming of the Lord, hey, they're asleep. They're, they're asleep. So he says in verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So those who deny are sleeping, what are the disciples to be doing? Watching. Watching. Looking earnestly for the return of the Lord. Looking for the the hope of his promise in John 14. Behold, if if I go to prepare a place for you, what did he say? I will come again. What was the point? To bring you unto myself that where i am there you will be also hey that's that's god's promise when he does it that's up to him that's up to the lord but don't neglect the concept that the scripture teaches in the imminent return there is nothing that can that is in the way as far as i am concerned of the lord calling the church home There's nothing that needs to take place. I'm looking for Him. I'm not looking for anything else. I'm looking for His return, praying always that I would be found worthy. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, the promise that the Lord gave to the church of Philadelphia. That they would escape the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world. What's the point in all this? It's pretty obvious. Anybody who knows me knows. I, am, I believe that the scripture teaches in a pre-trib rapture. That God is coming before the wrath of the Lord is poured out on the world. Good news is this. Whether you believe in a pre-trib or the mid-trib or the post-trib, whether you're all millennials or a preterist, whatever your views are on the scripture... If you've asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, we'll all figure it out when we're there. Right? And if you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture and you're a, a post-tribber or, or mid-tribber, it's okay. I'll explain it all to you on the way up. <laughs> Sorry, cheap joke. <laughs> okay. 
So let's go on. Verse 9 is very important to that concept that I hold. For God did not appoint us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, that means we're living, or we sleep, that means we're dead, that we should live together with him. God did not appoint us unto wrath. When we read Isaiah chapter 13, what were we talking about? The wrath of God, right? Where did the wrath of God, if, if I don't have to bear the wrath of God, where was the wrath of God poured out? It was poured out upon his son. Jesus Christ drank the cup to the full. He bore that wrath, that payment, the price of sin, so that I could be in a right relationship with God. So when God pours out his wrath upon a world that does not believe, he's not pouring it out upon his own children. The reason that I, I hold to that again, I think scripture, pattern in scripture bears it out. When I go and I look at the life of Abraham, and Abraham had that nephew, remember that fellow that was never really listening to Abraham very much? His name was Lot. And Abraham decided to divide from Lot. He said, Lot, where do you want to live? And Lot basically said, I'm going to go live in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham went the other way. Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They parted ways. The next time Abraham even hears about anything, he is visited by the Lord himself and two angels. And the Lord says, shall we not tell our friend Abraham what we're planning on doing? So they tell him, we're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness is, raises up to God. And he is going to judge. So he's going to pour out his judgment on actually the five cities of the plain. He's going to pour it out on all five. In case you think that that sin was homosexuality, you should read the book of Ezekiel. For the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is the same sin that is evident in the United States today. Fullness of food, pride of life, and they didn't care at all for the poor and suffering. And so he says, hey, God's coming. He's bringing his judgment. And so what is it? Abraham, knowing that Lot's there, what did he say? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And what did God say? Nope. I won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. What if there's only 50 righteous? If there's 50 righteous, I won't destroy the city. What if there's 40, 30, 20? What if there's 10 righteous? If there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city. How many was there? One. What did God do? He took them out. The angels laid their hands upon him because Lot was lagging, and they pulled him from the city. And then the judgment of God came. Any country in our world today, before it goes to war, does what with its ambassadors? Brings them home. Brings them home. And so, for those reasons and others, the picture of the, the Jewish wedding and a lot of things that we don't have time to get too far into tonight... That's the view that I hold to. The, the primary argument for folks is when does the wrath of God begin? Uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 deals with the tribulation period, that seven-year period known as the 70th week of Daniel. The day of the Lord is specifically dealing with the last three and a half years. 
of that period of time. However, Revelation chapter 6, at the beginning of the tribulation, it is called the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And so I hold that the beginning of the tribulation is the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath. And so I believe that the rapture will take place before that. And I think that's what Scripture lays out for us. And that's what Paul is, is laying out for these guys here. The amazing thing is, he had already gone into all that. He'd only been there four weekends, one month. But he had already laid out for them at least a concept of eschatology in the end times and what would take place. And, and he's also writing here to build again on that concept. So, and, and finally, I'm just going to go to verse 11. Therefore, what's he say? Comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Comfort each other and, and uh, edify one another. Comfort and build up. Encourage one another. Hey, in, in any given body, you'll have uh, lots of opportunity, especially when we deal with eschatology and the study of end times and prophecy, to have differences of opinion. The only time that it puts a, a bug in my bonnet is if someone tries to tell me because I have a difference of opinion with them, I can't be saved. Because now they're walking in some treacherous areas that my salvation occurs by my faith in Christ and my faith in Christ alone. And so that is the, the main thing and holding the main thing is the main thing. But here, hey, he says, here's a comfort. Here's a comfort. Guys, you're not in the tribulation yet. Hey, it was bad for Thessalonians. If you and I were in Thessalonica and going through the stuff they were going through, we'd think we were in the tribulation too. But Paul says, nah, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. And don't worry about those who have died. They're still in God's hand. God's going to take care of them. And use this as your hope. Jesus will call you home. He will descend. He will call you. So what? Look, watch and pray. Look for that imminent return of Christ. And encourage one another. Encourage one another in it. Hey, the book of Hebrews tells us, hey, you, you haven't yet suffered as Christ suffered. So, you haven't yet suffered through to, to bloodshed, he would go on and write. But look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has seated down at the right hand of God the Father. Look for him. Look to Him. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard things are, no matter the struggles that we go through, always live that day like this is a day Jesus is coming back. Because then I won't let that day pass without talking to my grandma and grandpa, without reaching out and, and sharing with my neighbor, without finally having the boldness to say or proclaim the faith that God has given us. We want to use that, allow that to propel us, to encourage us. Hey, Jesus is coming back. Hey, folks been saying it for 2,000 years. I, I guarantee we're closer than ever. <laughs> right? Jesus is coming back. How do I know? 
Every single promise God ever made in the Old Testament is fulfilled. All the way to the point where God calls a man out by his name. Cyrus, you're going to be my servant. 800 years before Cyrus was born. Yeah. God will fulfill his promise. No question. No question. And so, just like Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray. Be ready for the challenges that face us. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to go on tonight, continue in worship. Again, we want to provide the opportunity for folks to uh, just be able to freely worship, experience uh, the move of the Holy Spirit. We're going to continue to worship. You're free to pray. you know, with whomever or wherever you'd like to pray, we want to uh, provide that opportunity for the Spirit to move. Uh, we want the focus, as always, to be Christ, so please be sensitive to that. But uh, we're going to, I got a lot of worship, so I'm going to keep going for a while. If you got a bail, it's cool. Um, God bless you. If you're able to stay, well, that's great. Uh, we, we, we trust and hope that uh, the Spirit's going to move and guide and, and touch in a mighty way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We come before you. We ask, God, that you would uh, just touch this body, Lord Jesus, as we trust in you. Lord, we pray, God, that you would uh, <clears throat> guide and lead during this time as we seek not only to worship, but to be at your feet. Father, if that means we're, we're on our face or we're on our knees, that means we're standing with our arms raised, Father God, whatever the case. Lord, if we pray, God, that your spirit would move in this place, Father, and those to whom you, you have given a, a, a word or have a, a desire to pray with a brother or sister, Lord God, I, I pray that, Father, they would be willing to, to go over and share and minister, Father, your life and your truth. Lord, we lift this evening to you and ask that you will be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.